ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful to stand before your word, to consider it, to change our minds. In your son's name, amen. You know, for a number of weeks as I struggled my way through the unintentional series called James, um, I kept referring back to a passage of scripture that I wanted to have interrupted. I had heard the passage, I had heard the passage um, referred to at the funeral of Marla uh, Yoel that we went up to in Spokane a number of weeks ago. And, uh, um, and it wasn't what the pastor was speaking on. It says, I refer to this passage all the time in conversation. And I can never remember where it is. So you have to go looking for it with all other sort of connections. Okay, where on the page? And he brought it up and gave the reference. And it was so, and I, I think there was a pew Bible or something there. Uh, I don't think I had a Bible. And so I looked it up and ignored what he was saying. But it was that moment made the, you might say it was a mnemonic aid for me now knowing that 2 Kings chapter 6 is this thing that I regularly refer to. Now, what is this thing? It's during the life of Elisha, midway through. It's one of the this long list of kind of events in Elisha's life that show you how powerful he is. Um, it was interesting because he, there's almost a feeding of the 5,000 circumstance a few chapters earlier that you think, well, if Elijah was John the Baptist, maybe Elisha was representing or symbolizing the Christ. I didn't see enough of that. But there's a situation, that if, you, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, Elijah is serving God through the time of Ahab and Jezebel. And right about the elimination of Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah is caught up. Um, and, well, the elimination of Ahab, Jezebel lives a little bit longer. And uh, Elisha takes his place, uh, having received a double measure of the power or spirit of Elijah. And he has a ministry of maybe 50 years uh, and dies a natural death. Um, the reign of uh, Jehoram, uh, Joash, those guys. But this is a story that has always given me, it makes me smile. I always like it because there's this moment of, in Elijah's life, you know, where Elijah's caught up and a whirlwind catches him up, takes him to heaven, but they're parted by a, um, uh, well, they're parted by a chariot, fiery chariot and horses, and he's caught up by a whirlwind. Uh, he's not caught up in the fiery chariot. He's caught up by the whirlwind. The fiery chariot divides the two, and Elisha says, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And this scene, midway through Elisha's ministry, it involves fiery chariots and horses. And at the end of Elisha's life, when he's dying, the king comes to him and says to Elisha, My father, my father, 
the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Sort of an interesting continuity, I guess. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. This is probably Ben-Hadad, if you're keeping track of Syrian kings in the late 900s. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. This is a pattern. King of Syria does something tactical. The man of God just tells the king of Israel what's going on. The guy avoids the spot. Nothing happens. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? There's got to be a mole. There's got to be a spy telling the king of Israel how to avoid it. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. Now remember, Elisha was powerful. He was Tim the Magician powerful. He was Doctor Strange powerful. I guess that's what you young people deal with these days. And he was not at all like Doctor Who because the heroes of God are not dorks. But he, his, his bones caused someone to be raised from the dead. I mean, you have not even raised someone from the dead in your regular life. Just think of someone touching your gravestone and being raised from the dead. So he's powerful. He can read the king's mind in his own bedchamber. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots, these are not the horses and chariots that I'm talking about. And a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. You might remember this story. And I'm, I want you to think of it as a story, not a Bible, a Bible story. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, and you could picture that, what would you do cinematographically with that? Coffee in hand, shuffling in your toga, out to the windows, trying to rub your eyes, trying to figure out what's going on today, what kind of nonsense is my master, and went out and behold the army with horses and chariots was round about the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, this is Elisha, Fear not, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around about Elisha. There's the chariots of fire. It seemed to plague. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray thee, with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now, Elisha obviously can work it both ways. 
Lord, help this young man see. Lord, make these people blind. Both cases, it works. The Lord listens to his prayer, does what he asks. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and lo, they were in the midst of Samaria. Now Samaria, if you're not keeping track of things, Israel, the kingdom in the north, the capital city is Samaria. So the kings of Israel reign in Samaria. Okay? When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I slay them? Shall I slay them? And he answered, You shall not slay them. Would you slay those who you take it captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians came no more on rage to the land of Israel. It's a great story. Got all that little surprise equality, that personalness of the prophet saying, Oh, you're in the wrong town. I'll take you to see who you're looking for. Pray and they get blind, pray and they get sight, it all happens very um, succinctly. But it's that thing with the servant. I think that most people like that um, uh, quality about the. Uh, about the story, where someone who doesn't see the Lord's provision is allowed to see the Lord's provision. The Lord's provision doesn't show up when he sees it. Doesn't show up when Elisha prays. It's there. Elisha sees it. He's familiar with fiery chariots. Now, obviously, we are in a state. We're not in the same state. Syria is not invading us. He said, well, that's actually pretty close to what might happen. Syria is now active in things. Same cities, Damascus, um, Arfad, same cities. But we have to look at and say, what do we do with the passage? You know, because the Old Testament's filled with stories. What do you do with a story? My father always said, you don't make doctrine from narrative. Okay. But when the Lord does something, we don't say if something happens in a story, it doesn't mean it was good or bad. But if the Lord does it, it means the Lord could do it. The Lord answers Elisha's prayer for sight in his servant and for blindness in the series. We've talked about that a number of times where there is a, um, a tendency for the Lord to both open eyes and shut eyes. To him who has will more be given. To him who has not, what he has will be taken away. But you look first at the story and say, what does seeing look like? That's, that's not an intended part. What does seeing look like? What is Elisha's position regarding this? He's not even considering the problem. He just turns to the Lord and says, Lord, help this guy see what's really going on. Because Elisha is made confident by what he sees. 
if you know if you know what's in the dark. Yeah, have you ever worn night vision goggles? I have not. I don't own a pair. Uh, but I hear, or I've seen in the movies, the people with the night vision goggles see more than the people who don't have them in the night until someone turns on the lights. Then it's then it hurts. But you know the kind. If you were going, if you were playing laser tag in the dark and you had night vision goggles and nobody else did. You'd be walking around confidently, shooting your friends. They wouldn't know what hit them because they can't see, and you can see. You know what that confidence is, what is seeing intended to do? Primarily, it gives you the information you need to function in the space that you're functioning in. So blindness is a, it's not just different, blindness is worse, right? Not seeing. Um, you know how you know I object to soccer just just generically because well they don't play it in heaven but um, because you're denied use of your opposable thumb. What if they blindfolded you too, just to make it more interesting? Blindfolded, no hands, run around in the field. They'd be running, you know, down the hall to the locker room. They wouldn't know where they were. The score would stay the same. Yeah. We know that it's not just different. Sightless and sight are not just, oh, it's like green and red. It's like chocolate and vanilla. It's like Yanny and Laurel. It's not. Blindness is worse. And we know that we probably feel more like the servant a lot of times in our days as we are faced with anxieties of life that we don't see what's coming. We know something's coming, tomorrow's coming. We don't see what that is. And our lack of sight makes us nervous. Our lack of sight makes us anxious. And you're told to be anxious for nothing. So it seems that sight not just to the servant, it would be important to us. Calamities come. Things that we pray for, sickness and, and, uh, and the like. If you knew, if you saw, you'd be confident. Now, you look at what Elisha does. You could make a lesson out of Elisha's treatment of his enemies. They had come to capture him. He had stricken them with blindness. He'd been protected by the chariots of the Lord. Stricken them with blindness, led them to their opposing city, fed them a good meal, and they sent them home. He was just gracious in the whole situation. You want to see the eagerness of the king going, shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? But we're not talking about what Elisha does with his sight. Other than we know it, the lesson is about confidence. The servant goes, oh, I did not know. We're having to ask ourselves in this situation, what does the Christian see? I, I am not Elisha, you're not Elisha, you're not the servant, Syrians aren't attacking. What are we doing? Is this just a, a can we just derive a platitudinous uh, 
uh, recommendation about open your eyes, you'll see a lot around you. That kind of stuff. Put it on Facebook. Or Christians faced with sight and in seeing, um, given the same thing, given that knowledge of God's purposes in you. Because I, you know, I don't know if you thought it, but look at that verse uh, 16 in that Second Kings passage. Fear not, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Did that strike a chord? Any Bible verse besides this one? Um, the, the, this is what, as I was reading through the passage, this is the verse that went, oh, oh yeah. Well, conveniently, it's the next passage here. Out of 1 John, chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit which confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children in red, you are of God, and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Okay, looking back at the uh, King's passage, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That's the sum total of it. Because he doesn't see, the, the angel doesn't see, oh, I just have it a vision. It's not visions compared to regular sight. It's chariots and fiery, fiery chariots and horses in the unseen realm around the prophet. It's the chariots and horsemen of Syria that are the problem. It's the chariots and horsemen of God that are the answer, the things seen. It's, it's competitive. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So for the Christian, in seeing what you're supposed to see, and these are just a couple of passages we're going to be looking at, a Romans passage and John passage. There's a lot more things you can add to this because you want to spend your life looking for what is seen. Because your confidence as a Christian, your ability to stand and even die for Jesus Christ, is going to be measured out for you by how well you see not whether you feel left alone and nobody's there to bail you out. Look at the things that he is saying Christians see. If you see the Christ, everyone that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And that second part is the word actually, basically. When it says come in the flesh, it means they didn't come like the Gnostics said, just kind of an impression, an image, an appearance came in the flesh. He was incarnate man. Actual. As actual as the people sitting next to you in church. Therefore, in verse 5 it says, they are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever listens to God listens to us. 
And he who is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how you tell whether you're seeing things correctly, at least as a question. If you want to see things clearly as a Buddhist, fine. Wrong meeting, wrong time. You probably didn't have to get up this morning. But if you want to see things as Christians see them, you see the Christ, you see him incarnate, and you get the impression of the Christ Christ incarnate from the apostles. And listening to them, that's what it says there, whoever knows God listens to us. If you don't listen to us, you are not of God. This is how you tell between error and truth, seeing and not seeing, accurate things that are there for you to be believed and seen. You might disagree with the apostles in some place. I mean, America, you know, takes all kinds. I don't think it should be, you know, they really were too affected by the, the traditions of the age and the rabbinics or Second Temple Judaism or whatever it is they're all about. You either believe the apostles or you don't. If you don't believe the apostles, you are not of God. That's how I'm told that I tell. And so when you walk up to me after a sermon and say, you know, I don't really agree with Paul on this bit in Ephesians, and you say, I said to you, oh, I won't say anything rude. Oh, because this is how I tell who has the spirit of truth and who has the spirit of error. Who represents Christ incarnate the way he is supposed to be represented. What is, what is supposed to be seen? This is, you might say, the Elisha image. This is the fiery chariot you do or don't see. As we face our anxieties, we, we, uh, we choose what we're going to say. We either run to our insurance companies, or we run to our doctors, or we run to our psychologists, or we run to our traditions of our family, or whatever we run to, all sorts of things, advice of friends. We're supposed to think, at least, without any question, there are other things for the disciple to see. He could, I mean, the sermon to see, he could look down at his coffee cup, and look up at the fiery chariots, look down at his coffee cup, and no matter what, the coffee cup would always be there. He could always say, well, it's always the caffeine that really gets me going in the morning. There are other things that are real. The caffeine is real, the coffee is real, the, the balcony in Elisha's place of habitation was real. You, you're going to be seeing a lot of things. The question is, do you see what God has given He gave his Christ, come in the flesh, in the flesh, represented by his apostles, who taught us things that the yes and no of this, that do I see? Remember, this is the God, this is the prophet, these are the people who say, you either see or you don't see. And what you choose in life is going to make you see it's not that you don't, you can't have anxieties because the servant has anxiety about the problem and the prophet answers it with sight. So you take your anxieties to the Lord. What does it say? Be anxious over nothing. 
but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your needs known to God. So that you didn't face up to the problems of this world, but you knew where to go for sight. Do you know that the incarnate Christ is where you go for sight? Where you go to see the right measure of things? Do you know that believing the apostles is where you go to see things as a Christian? Because that's what it tells you. Spirit of truth, spirit of error is whether you believe us. And they have, I don't know if you're aware, they have written a few of these books in the last part of it, you know, after Malachi. There's a few books written by those guys that, and it even is so kind as to put their names on the top of it. There's Matthew and so forth. And right at the very beginning of the book, you know, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus, writes to you, blah, blah, blah. It tells you, if I want to see, that's where the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, that's where the gift, it's not like you have an army attacking you and you need to see fiery chariots. I know you'd like to because it would be more like a movie. We need to... The thought of that little phrase, seeing is believing. We sometimes set that aside because so many people use it. Well, I don't see God, I don't see Christ, and seeing is believing. But we as Christians really actually read that passage, you might want to say that, that cliche, differently. Belief, we see by belief. Right? That the, the faith with um, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen through. I do have that backwards. The conviction of things hoped for. Whatever the case. It's absolute. You see it. Abraham, by faith, saw and greeted the answers of God, the promises of God, from afar. We know that faith is seen. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, are you like the, the servant with his cup of coffee the prophet prays and you still see nothing because you don't believe. Now what I wanted to encourage you toward is not some generic believe in these things, believe in the doctrine of Jesus. He came in the flesh actually as the apostles said. But the real answer, you know, because just like I said, the chariots of fire were chariots of fire. Okay? Matched up against chariots of wood. And the chariots of God, the host of God, the army of God, was going to win. If it got down to it, it was a throwdown moment. The chariots of the Lord of hosts was going to win against the Syrian army. What are we... What is the empowerment? You say, I, I, Evan, I'm, I understand how Christianity believes in Jesus Christ as a Messiah. He came to earth incarnate in true physical form, so he's able to die, be raised from the dead, etc. And he ascended to be with the Father. We all think of those as doctrinal. What's the, what's the button that makes this the fiery chariot? What's the thing that makes this a competition that you will win? So that's verse there in 1 John. It seems like it's a change of subject in my Bible. It actually changed the paragraph 
and broke it up by a few lines. But the next verse, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. If I claim Jesus Christ, I must claim him come in the flesh. If I claim him come in the flesh, I must claim him as the apostles taught of him. Because if I don't listen to the apostles, I'm not of God. But it keeps going. You don't get to say, I go to a church where we hold the doctrines of the faith and we teach expositionally from the scriptures from St. Paul. And you go, I don't want to go to that church because it sounds really icky. Because it would be, right? If they went that far. Orthodox and Pauline. Because men can really ruin St. Paul. The thing that St. Paul teaches, the thing that John teaches right here, says, okay, you're going to listen to us, apostles? What are we talking about? Church order? What are we talking about? Love. My brother, love one another. Because if you love, you're born of God. And you know God if you love. This is, is there's not one text. If I listen to the apostles, yes. If I love, yes. I can't love and not listen to the apostles. I can't listen to the apostles and not love. This is the fiery chariot of the Christian. This is the new covenant of the ethics of the believer. Because that's what the work of Christ was, was love. God extending himself to man. The last passage I put in here, because it was sort of sprang to mind, it's Romans 8, you're right at the end of the chapter. You all know this one. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? Like that. If God, God's providing the fiery chariot, I don't... You know, I could just sit here and sip my coffee. Watching what God provides, dealing with what threatens. Whatever is threatening in your life, whether it's illness or loss or, or success or whatever it is. If you're standing in Jesus Christ, taught by his disciples, affected by love, you can sip your coffee. It's not going to be a problem. You're not going to be going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Because the servant, if he didn't see the fiery chariots, he would have put down his coffee. He wouldn't even enjoy his coffee. It would have gotten cool. You say, does he really believe he had coffee? It's an image. I'm using it as an image. A metaphor for contentment and confidence. Can you stand in Jesus Christ and enjoy your coffee regardless of what is happening to you? Lost your job, lost your girlfriend, lost you know, a family member to death, um, bad things, people that you don't like getting elected, stuff like that. What are you going to do? You're going to drink your coffee in confidence because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, actually. He has been represented by his apostles, taught by him, and he has given himself to you that way in order that you might be born of God and love. Right? And it's the love that makes you not a bastard. 
Okay? Either this wreck of anxiety, because I know some of you women, I'm not being a sexist, but some of you women kind of like that. Kind of feature yourselves as kind of being more feminine for being just a wreck, a hot mess. And that's unacceptable. Sorry. Christianity means that we have seen the fiery chariots and we're sipping the coffee. Looking at whatever is being offered. And the men who aren't being led to love so they can't be sure that they know God or are born of God unless you love. And the power of this is at the fiery chariot level because we would rather have I mean, if you, I mean, say, say the non-believers here in town got it in for you. They said, he's a too effective a Christian. Let's go by his house and rough him up a bit. So you come out on your porch with a cup of coffee, because it's got to be in the scene. Cup of coffee, there's a horde of just annoyed secularists who are going to beat the living tar out of you. You sip your coffee, you look around above the trees, and there's a bunch of angels with truncheons. Okay? A nice black leather truncheon. It's going to sting. It's going to hurt. You're just going to take another sip, right? You're going to look at it and just take another sip. That's the power of this love we have in Jesus Christ. If you love, if you don't love, you're going to be annoyed at everyone. You're going to be annoyed at even God. But if you love, you'll be sure you're born of God. You'll be sure you know God. You can sip your coffee. Romans 8. If God is for us, who is against us? And then it describes that this whole thing of Christ coming to flesh is not merely a chant that you say back when you get to that point in the catechism. It's not just the story Christians believe. The divine gift of the fiery chariot that you want, yes, you'd like that scene, you'd like to see the angels, you know, rough up a few secular humanists, but you've been given something more than fiery chariots. You've been given something that you will stand confidently as they kill you. In Elisha, the picture, the picture of this confidence, he is delivered by God's miraculous work. You might not be. And even if you were in one situation, you won't be in another, and you may die having gone through many circumstances of loss, but this gift of God, this divine seeing, is greater than that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? You're asking yourself that. Is he going to give you everything? He gave you his son. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. 
He's leaning on this when I say Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What the apostles teach about Jesus Christ come in the flesh is the love that that is. Because everything we talked about this last week, if you don't love, uh, that's where every aspect of human relationship problems, all sin is human relationship, and you're not loving, you're the, you might say, the fewest fiery chariots in your, your um, stables. You don't have really any fiery chariots to speak of. The closest thing you got to a fiery chariot is when the kids came down from Sunday school and they had been getting the assumption of Elijah as the lesson and there was a nice picture that they colored in, hopefully well, uh, of Elijah going to heaven in the whirlwind. Actually, they'll put it in the fiery chariot because they always get that wrong. But this is the closest you've gotten to it. We want fiery chariots because we'd, we'd be happy with a lot less. We just want something to bail us. Not someone, but something by which the divine has given all and will give us all. And the all is his love. And you can be killed and it won't bother you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, that's what he says. If God is for us, who could be against us? Who shall separate us from such a great gift of love? Do you see it, or do you only chant it? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And all of those, those are all things that should get us all on board with feeling the difficulty of it. It doesn't mention sin, it's just difficulties, tribulation, violence. And some of the men develop a swagger, a more masculine church. We're going to be dealing with this, not by the fiery chariots of God, but pulling together your own little posse where you're going to go deal with tribulations. First, prove that you have seen the fiery chariots of God. Have you seen the love of God in Christ? If you haven't seen the love of God in Christ, and you haven't ex- dealt with the love of God, because we love because he first loved us, Remember that's a quote. Love because we first loved us. This is about love. This is the fiery chariot. This is the divine. If you don't see the love of God in Christ, it's the whole idea that you wouldn't know the fiery chariot if it bit you in the fanning. But it says, as it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's letting you know that the fiery chariot motif, the story out of the Old Testament, the thing that the miracle happens to bail you out, the eucatastrophe that comes and, and has a happy ending. You get the girl and you get to beat up the secular humanists. Or the angels do. In this case, they may just kill you. And what does our Lord say? Our Lord says, do not fear him who can kill the body. And after that, they can do nothing. But fear him rather, once he is killed, can cast body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What we're dealing with when we have seen the divine offer, when we've seen the work of Christ as love, 
Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's how you're more than a conqueror. That's how you stand sipping your coffee, not caring what the world can do to you or what circumstances have done to you because you have looked upon the love of God in Christ. If you are having trouble, it is not a matter of going to get counsel where you're told how to deal with that particular trouble. There may be wisdom for it. But your situation is, you don't know the fiery chariots. You haven't looked at the love of God in Christ. You think you have picked that up by you holding to a particular confession or creed. You have not. It's because he loved that we love. And if you don't love, it's because you haven't seen it. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're surrounded by the fire chariots of the faith all the freaking time. And you're living as if there is no support. Like, I just don't know the I just know the trick. I don't know the trick. How do you do this? Quit loving yourself and love the Lord your God. Right? Love your neighbor. Does you ever hear about this love? You keep hearing about it? Face others. Don't face you. That's what love is, is turning towards someone. And there's nothing in creation that is stronger than this. Anything that is made. Concepts. You can't even do concepts. Height, depth. Not even concepts. Because the love of God is that strong. Like Elisha's absolute confidence that the army of God was surrounding him in the city of Dothan. And he could drink his coffee like a saint. You want to get up in the morning and know that you know the love of Jesus Christ and that your love for others, your husband, your wife, your kids, your friends, your co-workers, everyone gets the love of someone who has seen the chariots of God. Just thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for surrounding us with this and never allowing anything in all creation to be greater than this. Lord, help us look on it Help us see it. Reprimand us. Bring us to repentance if we choose not to see it. Lord, we've lived life long enough blind. Be merciful. In your Son's name, amen.